for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, January is over, and that means the end of dry January for those who made that pledge back on New Year's Day. But if you're looking to carry on into 2024, is there a way to build momentum for that month of abstinence? I speak with someone who was long a self-professed dry January dropout until four years ago when it helped launch a true lifestyle change. She explains what happened. Speed kills is a familiar warning for drivers. Well, California is now looking at requiring vehicles to be equipped with devices to stop them from going faster than 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. Could it work here in Canada? We speak with a retired Ontario Provincial Police Traffic Inspector who's seen a whole lot of tragedy on the roads about his take on the debate. Toronto Star business reporter Jake Edmonston is with us to chat about a story he's written on the mysteries surrounding private or store brand products that you see on the shelves of every grocery chain. Who makes them? Are they the same thing as those well-known national brands? He shares what he's found out. But first, why is Alberta's liquor board suddenly targeting BC wineries? Many have received letters of late warning them to halt all direct sales to Alberta customers or they'll be barred from selling their wine in that province. We look into why there are suddenly sour grapes in what is usually a pretty sweet relationship. Start with wine. Uh, the Okanagan wine industry, in wine industry, BC's wine industry, uh, basically has had a whole lot of challenges recently. There were wildfires over the summer. You'll remember it's been cold as well. And now the latest one is coming from what is usually a friendly neighbor, Alberta. Uh, a letter obtained by Global News from Alberta's government's Gaming, Liquor, and Cannabis Commission, the AGC, AGLC, uh, says that BC wine producers need to stop shipping wine directly to consumers across provincial borders. It said the agency's been investigating that practice. You know, Albertans will order directly from uh, vineyards or from wineries uh, instead of buying them in Alberta's liquor stores, both private and uh, the, the private liquor stores there. Now, it says if BC wineries do not comply it will start to refuse shipments for their products to be stocked in Alberta's restaurants and liquor stores. So this is pretty high stakes for, for BC wineries. Um, Painted Rock Estate Winery in the Okanagan is one of those that received the letter. Here is owner Jeff Skinner, or John Skinner, rather. We're the only country on the planet that has this kind of interprovincial uh, regulation. Every other country, you can ship within your national borders. This is, this is absurd. And it may explain why it's easier to find, you know, a, South, a bottle of South African or New Zealand or Australian wine in most liquor stores in this country than it is to find a bottle of BC wine. Um, the AGLC says they are leveling the playing field. They called the move an opportunity for BC wineries to market their products to Albertans through legal channels. Um, you know, they say with no oversight, AGLC cannot ensure that these products are being sold only to adults over the age of 18. That sounds like a bit of a bit of a red herring, doesn't it? Here is Michael Skinner of Summerhill Pyramid Winery in the Okanagan. It feels like we've had a few rough years and uh, this is one more thing to add to the list, but um, we will find a way to get wine to Alberta. Michael Alexander, that is. Uh, joining me now is Mike Prodan. He's president and CEO of the Wine Growers of British Columbia. Mike, Miles, thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, my pleasure. So uh, just tell me what's tell me what's going on here because this sounded like a pretty pretty heated language from Alberta on this one. Well, yeah, it, it's taken us by a great surprise, uh, as you said in your uh, introductory remarks. There, uh, there, uh, Alberta that is is a strong trading partner uh, 
for British Columbia, and uh, we've never had uh, any trade berries of substance uh, to speak of, and uh, this clearly is one of those, and we're not sure what's the motivation or where it's come from. How important are uh, direct sales to Albertan consumers for wineries in B.C.? Well, critical. Um, You know, the Alberta market is second only to our home market here in B.C. And so uh, Albertans who love to come and uh, visit and uh, get have a relationship with uh, a B.C. winery and join a wine club and go home and continue to uh, experience and enjoy B.C. wine through having it shipped to them. And so it's 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 very important. And many of our producers are small producers. They're generally family, you know, farms for most part and so that relationship is 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 critical and to have and to have the uh LG AGLC sort of arbitrarily put up uh you know a, a fence around that that the ability for us to do that is is again it's it's a mystery to us we're not we're not clear on what the motivation is we've seen it before uh 2018 the AGLC uh made uh, an, a similar uh, proclamation that they were going to boycott and, and stop all shipment uh, for BC wine. But at that time, it was really clearly about getting uh, Alberta oil and gas to tried, Tidewater here in BC. And and that, that cooler has prevailed. Uh, I, I note the pipeline has been put through. Um, so we wonder to ourselves, is 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 this something else behind it? And, and if so, what is it? And let us know so we can deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Back in 2018, that was more of a question of uh, sort of a stare down over over some serious trade issues between the two provinces. Uh, do you have a, a, any idea what exactly the issue uh, that the AGLC is is pointing out here? Well, in their letter, and all we can go by is is a letter. We've uh, tried to have direct communications with them, and uh, to no uh, no avail so far. We've asked our provincial government to help to step in and uh, and, and talk to their peers in uh, in the Alberta government to understand what the issue is. But if we go by the, the base of the letter, they are claiming uh, we're in, in, in breach of, of a regulation, both a federal regulation uh, they allude to and provincial regulations. And we're not aware of any federal regulation. Uh, the federal government uh, got out of, uh, you know, of governing or overseeing, restricting uh, the shipment of uh, alcohol between provinces in 2019. Um, and so now uh, under the provincial law, again, we're not clear on what, that regulation is. Uh, we do know that there are restrictions. The AGLC has restrictions on consumers within Alberta getting delivery uh, from uh, outside of the province. Uh, and so we think that maybe this is instead of uh, going uh, against or uh, calling out to Alberta consumers, they're coming against uh, BC uh, producers. But again, we're not aware of the regulation. It doesn't stipulate what what regulation's been broken, and nor does it. Does it uh, have any process for us to uh, take a look at what proof they may have and and maybe to even uh, argue uh, uh, against it? So we're sort of left uh, with an arbitrary decision to stop uh, taking wine into uh, the AGLC's warehouse. Right. In this case, this is this is wine clubs and so on where consumers in Alberta would presumably buy directly from the wineries and, and sort of bypass the AGLC system. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely, and and uh, it's really just about uh, coming into the uh, BC and, and enjoying a wine club. You don't have to do that in person; you can do it anyway, anytime, and having wine shipped directly to you. You know, I note the AGLC suggests that uh, you know you can get your wine made available through uh, their system, and that's true. You can, but generally, you can get it listed, but you then need to uh, convince a uh, a retail store or a restaurant 
to put it uh, up for sale or make it available uh, through that channel. And uh, that's not an easy that's not an easy route to go. And especially if you're small, um, you just don't have the uh, quantity to really uh, supply that kind of a network. You can imagine convincing a, uh, a, a restaurant to put your wine on the list only to run short because you just don't have that much much available and uh, no no retailer uh, wants to have run out of a product. So, you know, being able to ship it directly to a consumer satisfies, satisfies both parties. It satisfies the consumer and, and the winery who's, who's left out, I guess, is the AGLC. And if that's the case, if it's tax money that they want, we've, we've heard them allude to that. We've long proposed a, a system where we're happy to uh, collect and remit the tax uh, to uh, to the province if, that, if that's what's if that's what they're looking for and, and we know that that is what happens in the in the province of Manitoba it's it's relatively easy for a consumer to order wine from a BC winery have it shipped the tax is remitted to uh, the Manitoba government and everyone seems to be happy. Tell me a bit about the, uh, the 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 stick. Forget the carrot. Tell me a bit about the stick on this side of things. What happens if a, uh, if the AGLC goes through with their threats here? I mean, clearly this is a warning shot. What happens to BC wineries if, in fact, this uh, comes to fruition? Well, it's 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 not a warning shot. The letter was very clear. It went on Monday, and it said if you didn't uh, reply uh, directly uh, to acknowledge uh, that you uh, would not be shipping uh, to consumers, direct to consumers. Um, that you'd be uh, cut off. And uh, we've had trucks turn back uh, as recently as late last week and continues really? on to this week. So it's not an idle threat. They're following through on it, and um, and it's real. And uh, it's of a big concern for our wineries. Again, we've been hit uh, pretty hard with some uh, climatic you know, changes in the weather and, 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 and the rest of it. And, and, and this just sort of seems to be a real piling on. And again, we're not really clear on what rule we've broken and what law we're offside on. And um, without being able to address that or have a, an understanding of it, we're left to think that maybe there's some other motivation, political motivation behind it, like there was in 2018 when it would, had nothing to do with our industry at all, but related to uh, some a bigger a bigger dispute between the provinces. And if that's the case, let us know and see what we can do to help to, to straighten it out. Yeah, I mean, I mean, other than some ideological difference, I scratch my head to think what that could be right now that would that would allow for for the targeting of, of wineries here. I'm surprised they didn't reach out to you at all beforehand and say, hey, listen, you know, we're concerned about this. What can we do? Uh, well, that seems to be the, the fair thing to do. But no, we, we haven't had that. That letter, those letters came out. Uh, we, as the Industry Association, were not made aware of it. It, it was left to our... Uh, wineries to uh, to notify us about it we were prompt in in sending a reply to the AGLC that outlined our concerns about their action and and how we felt uh, you know w- w- what needed to sort of be addressed and uh, we have not heard back directly from them so uh, we've gone to our again our provincial uh, uh, officials to ask them to sort of help to step in there and I guess the next step for us is is to take a look at maybe some sort of legal remedy, but uh, that is not an inexpensive endeavor. Um, and our industry has been hard hit, and uh, with the cost of production and uh, the, the, the loss in crop, you know, it's not like uh, it, we just don't need a trade war for something we're not aware that we've caused or are involved with, other than uh, perhaps just just an easy an easy target to pick on. The only country on the planet that has this kind of interprovincial uh, regulation. Every other country, you can ship within your national borders. This is, this is absurd. 
That's John Skinner of the Painted Rock Estate Winery in the Okanagan. Miles Prodan, uh, President and CEO of the Wine Growers of British Columbia, is with us uh, this half hour. We're talking about Alberta sending uh, a pretty nasty letter to, some, to wineries in BC saying, listen, you can't sell direct to consumer in Alberta anymore. You're going to have to go through the AC, uh, go through us. And if you don't, we're going to halt, halt all deliveries of your wine into Alberta. Uh, Miles, this does just doesn't sort of reflect a bigger problem that we have in this country. And I've always found this, you know, I go back home to Ontario and Quebec, and there's almost no BC wine on the shelves. And I think it's weird that you can get a bottle of South African wine a lot easier than you can get a bottle of BC wine in much of this country. And part of it is these barriers that exist. I thought the federal government had sort of passed legislation to try to remove them, but I guess the, the provinces had to play ball. No, I, you're right. Um, there's been longstanding uh, federal uh, regulations that really oversaw transfer or sale of wine between the provinces. But they uh, they withdrew that. Uh, they, in 2019, uh, Bill C-311 came through, and uh, they left it up to the provinces to decide how best to uh, to manage that. And, and again, uh, you know, when you leave it to the individual provinces, listen, you know, liquor, uh, and including BC wine, is heavily, heavily taxed, right? And it's, it's a big generator of revenue, tax revenue for governments uh, across this country. And so uh, they've got reason to be protected of it. There are uh, monopolies in every province, including Alberta. Alberta is not uh, privatized. What's privatized in Alberta is the retail side of it. But the AGLC uh, manages the wholesale, wholesale side of it. So, of course, they want everything to go through them in order that they can get the tax. And that's, you know, understandable. That tax money goes to supporting schools and hospitals and the rest. It goes to the, to the general revenue of, 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 of all provincial governments, per se. But, but again, um, it's, if, if it's the tax that they want, we're not unwilling. We're not, we're not trying to get around the AGLC. The problem with the AGLC, uh, for instance, is that uh, we just are small producers, and our product gets lost in the mix um, you get the AGLC to list your product, as I said earlier, and then you've got to get a, a, a retail store to put it on the shelf. And right. they've got products to select from all over the world. So uh, we've got the direct relationship with our customers, the, the Albertans who come, and we want us to continue to have that. And if they want the tax, we're happy to remit it. Just let us know if that's the issue. There's a simple mechanisms for, for working that out like we do in Manitoba, and we're more than willing and happy to do that uh, in Alberta. Again, we just want to be able to sell our wine to our customers who uh, have love it and, and want to have it and want to buy it. We want to sell it to them. So yeah. uh, it makes no sense that there's barriers stopping us to do that. In this case, it feels like both consumers and producers are sort of being wrapped up in red tape. And ultimately, I mean, I understand the tax revenue side of this, of course, but ultimately there is a certain amount of bureaucracy involved here. And I know lots of governments talk about trying to cut red tape, but this feels like a lot of red tape being wrapped around this issue. Well, I, and I, I note that uh, the AGLC falls under the uh, red uh, tape reduction uh, ministry oh, in Alberta. Indeed, so, uh, indeed. I don't, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know what that, I mean, again, there's something going on there that we're missing. Either we're not paying attention or we've not been told. Uh, and I, we can only relate back to 2018 when it had to do with getting uh, Alberta oil and gas uh, to the coast. And so mm. if there's something we're missing, let us know if there's something that needs to be worked out. Let us know. Uh, but again, we've got the product and they've got the customers. And why can't we, why did the two of us can't get together? Uh, and, but it speaks to interprovincial trade barriers that uh, that don't aren't just for the wine industry. There, there are other aspects of it as well. But we thought we were making some headway when the federal government uh, got out of the way. Well, the plot thickens here, Miles. We'll have to get to the bottom of this. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Anytime. Thank you. Wow, 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 wow. No, we've already got peanut
peanut butter and jelly. Ma, I hate that stuff. It tastes like concrete. Bring it up, please. When I was a kid, my dad would try to save money any way he could. So when my mother went shopping, he had one rule. No name brands. So instead of Fruit Loops, Cheerios, or Frosted Flakes, we got... Cereal? What is this stuff? Loats? Flakes? Is there a prize inside? The prize is you don't starve to death. Bring it up. And instead of Oreos, Ginger Snaps, or Chips Ahoy, we got... Cookie? That's right, cookie. Not cookies, cookie. A big bag with one cookie in it. Everybody hates Chris. Of course, Chris Rock there. And, and, but, you know, and I think if we all think back to childhood, that was one of those debates you always had with your parents. I, don't, I think it may have been a bit different when I was growing up, sort of, you know, late 70s, early 80s and so on. When you went to the grocery store and you're like, hey, can we get these? And like, hey, listen, the no-name brand, the store brand is just as good. And you're like, no, it's not. I haven't seen commercials for the store brand on TV on Saturday morning, so it's not as good by its very nature. Um, I think many of us have had those childhood memories and arguments. Uh, Grant and North Cowich, I've been asking you today about store brands that are actually better than than the uh, retail national brand ones. And Grant North Cowich says, uh, Western Family Granola Dipped Caramel Bars taste better than Quaker Oats Chewy. Not only taste uh, Not only taste better, but are cheaper and more grams per box. You see, sometimes they are indeed better than the ones you pay more for with the fancy packaging. And there is a reason for that. Um, Private label brands have come, again, they've come a long way since back then, right? But they do remain one of the mysterious parts of any trip to the grocery store. All those familiar names that you'll know, compliments, selection, no name, Kirkland, Signature, Great Value, Western Family, on and on and on. Who makes them? Are they actually made by the same people that make the national brands you pay more for? It's certainly a guarded secret in the industry. You can almost never tell by looking at the packaging itself who, in fact, made them, right, for the for the store brands. You just can't tell. I'm a big fan of those no-name uh, crinkled chips. I think those are fantastic. They taste just as good to me as anything more expensive with a fancy label. Uh, but there's a psychological aspect to all of this as well. But if that's the case, if it's the same people making the products both for the na- if the national brands not only make their own products, but make these private label pro- products for the grocery stores, why would they be making something that sells for less, often tastes as good, and competes against them right next to them on the store shelves usually? Well, Toronto Star Business reporter Jake Edmiston set out recently to tear the lid off these off this mystery. Uh, his article is called Inside One of the Food Industry's Most Guarded Secrets – the Making of Private Label Brands. I was fascinated by it. It's a great read. And Jake was kind enough to join me now. Jake, thanks so much for your time tonight. Pleasure to be here. This is one of those stories. I mean, anybody who spent any time, and that's all of us in a grocery store, has always asked these, these questions. Why do private label brands remain such a great mystery to us? Mostly because it's it's we're talking about competitive issues between major retail chains. And each one of them have you know a handful of their own store brands. And don't really want to talk about who makes them because I think before I even really got into this, I think I was a little bit surprised because you just think it's a brand that makes something, you know, the the store brand must have a store branded. I wish that was one one big factory that made them for everyone. That was always my theory, but I know it's not true. (laughs) It's, but it's, it's hard to sort out what's been going on. Like it, it, it took going through some government records to actually kind of sort out who makes what. Right. For obvious reasons, not only were they already pretty popular, they're very popular now. 
Yes. Um, you know, having some record sales because all of the major grocers are reporting that, you know, their sales of their store brands are, are rising at a faster rate than the sales of the national brand, just because most households are looking for savings wherever uh, they can find them. So not only are we, you know, picking the private label brand over the national brand, but there's more traffic to those discount stores versus the full service stores. There's, um, you know, a lot more uh, uptake on in-store promotions, that kind of thing. There's, there's, there, you know, the, the stores call it a, a search for value. And I think, I, I think that um, makes sense to a lot of us. Right. Uh, tell me a bit about the history here, because I remember back to sort of the early days. Now, we didn't have Loblaws where I grew up in Montreal, but I used to go visit my mom in Ottawa. And obviously there was the president's choice at the time. And that, that to me, I mean, I know there were other sort of private label brands before that, but that sort of, to me, the 80s kind of epitomized the arrival of those brands. Definitely. So in and around that time, you see, you basically, it's a much more basic idea of the store brand or the private label brand where it's very much a value play. They call it a, the, at the time it was the national brand equivalent. So you wanted something that was equal or better, but just, you're basically just, it was a copycat, right? So, you know, your Cheerios, you, you have your, your whatever, Happy O's or whatever you want right. to call it, your, your store brand. The, the thing at the time was that, and this was what surprised me, was that if you want somebody to make your private label brand, who do you turn to? If you don't, you know, these stores, they're, they're not manufacturers and that's not what they want. They didn't really want to do it. So they look for somebody to make their store brand for them. And what they want, they want is something that they can charge the consumer less for. So it's at a cheaper price. And it's also they can make more margin on it because they're not, you know, it's not there's not the same amount of marketing and advertising and research and development going into it. It's just, you just make the product, but who makes it is the big question. So back then it was the, the manufacturers that were making the big national brands said, okay, if we've got some room on our line, we'll take on a private label contract because then we can spread out our overhead costs. Everybody's more profitable. We make the, the, the retailer happy. Every So there were those situations where, you know, the national brand is on, is making one, product on its manufacturing line. Maybe it's using that line 70% of the time. It's got an extra 30%. It's a very similar recipe, if not sometimes the exact same. Why don't we just make the private label stuff as well? So that was the sort of basic formula that uh, the store brands were using. It's changed since then. So a little bit has changed. You, You still have these national brand equivalents, but they've also decided that, and this is where President's Choice pioneering brand in Canada. The, the guy behind it was Dave Mickle, um, you know, the decadent chocolate chip cookie. This was a guy who said, I think we don't, we're not just copycats. I think we can be better than the national brand. I right. think we have more chocolate chips than the national brand. Uh, and so the, this idea that maybe we can have not just one store brand, but we can have a couple. So we'll have like a, a basic copycat brand that's just your similar stuff for cheaper, but also we'll have something that's a little bit more luxurious and more, and we'll, we'll put some research and development money into it. So at this point, you have this kind of soup where according to some people I spoke to, you know, the younger demographics are coming on, never really seeing the rise of private brands, just seeing them all as brands. So I, even me in, in researching this, Ben, sometimes I realize like, wait, I didn't know that that was a store brand. Like some of them right. you just thought were brands. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, to speak about it from the grocer's perspective, I, I can see why this all makes sense. First of all, if you have a brand that people like, it's it's a draw to your store. You're making a bigger margin on what you do sell. They're cheaper, generally. So that that's also a lure. Um, you know, I was thinking when I lived in Britain, you know, store brands there are ubiquitous. I mean, Marks & Spencer's is almost an 80% store brand. And it's funny how it didn't catch on as well here. But I guess for grocers, there's just a lot of good when it comes to getting these private label brands onto your shelves. Yes, exactly. Like, like, and even, you know, it's interesting, Europe, the market share of private label brands is huge, right? We're in, we're in around 20% in Canada, which is a bit more than the States. But in Europe, you have 
big discounts. You have Marks and Spencers, but you also have Aldi, Lidl, Lidl yeah. these companies yeah. that have major private label brands that, that kind of drive their stores. So it is popular in Canada, but I was amazed. I saw some data out of Europe and the amount of private label out there is crazy. Jake Edmiston is with us this half hour. He's business reporter with the Toronto Star. Uh, we're talking about an article he's written recently called Inside One of the Food Industry's Most Guarded Secrets, The Making of Private Label Brands. We're all familiar with them. We see them on the shelves all the time. There's the age-old debate about whether the national brands are better, whether these are just sort of cheap knockoffs or are they almost the same thing? So, Jake, this is always the question. If you're a private, if you're an actual national brand, why would you make a copy of yourself so that one of your the people who sell it for you can sell it for less on, and and usually position it right beside your product? So we talked about this a little bit before, but the, the the main reason is you've got space in your factory. So this product is very similar to the product you make. Not a lot of twitches you have to make on your production line. If you're run, running at uh, less than 100% capacity, why not bring something on and 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 then you you can you know spread out your overhead costs. It it, it kind of makes sense in that way. It was as as one person uh, in the industry described it to me. They said it's the lesser of two evils, right? You either right. help out the competitor and you run at full capacity, or you run at less than full capacity. Obviously, though the national brands see profit here, right? Even so, whatever it is they're losing by by making this for their competitor, technically, they're making up for it by running their assembly lines 100% more of the time. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing is in in a lot of categories where there's heavy investment in research where there's, you know, there's a lot of capital that goes into making these products. And then you're, you know, every year you've got the the next greatest innovation in this. So, but, so then you move on, you know, you have one product that you took, spent millions of dollars to, to, to create, and then, you know, 2.0 comes along and you haven't fully got all of the capital out of it. Well, why don't you put that into private label and sell, start, start selling that as, as through private label. If that, does that make sense? Like that's also kind of a, another strategy. Okay. We've, we've moved on to 2.0, but we still have 1.0, which is pretty good. And, and why don't we sell it into private label? Right, and you also mentioned that for the uh, for the grocery for the grocers themselves, whoever you know, those who are putting out the private label brands, um, that they they take quite a bit of care and consideration in trying to try to make them appealing as well. Like this is not necessarily just a cheap knockoff. They do want people to like and enjoy and buy these products because I, I it, only they sell them, right? So it would make sense. You can buy a bag of the national brand anywhere you want, but you can only buy the, the private brand in their store. I I happened to be allowed into the Walmart Walmart's brand is great value and they have a couple of other brands, but their test kitchen in the GTA, like in, in just outside of Toronto. And I got to, to spend some time with one of their product developers whose job. And one of his jobs is, is looking at products that are doing well or, you know, and trying to, to sort of come up with a great value product that sort of matches that flavor. And he was telling me about one of his products, uh, was this sort of spicy barbecue chip and essentially this he was trying to match or trying to have it taste like flaming hot so he went and basically bought a bunch of national brands and then started eating and eating and eating and basically like that that <laughs> is like a cool match. job it sounds like a cool job yeah it, it, <laughs> it does sound like a cool job to get to eat a bunch of snacks he gets very serious when he talks about it because i think at some point eating chips stops being fun and you end up having to spit it out into a cup and right the way he talked about it he was like it's a lot of chips <laughs> it's, yeah, I suppose it's a lot of chips trying to get trying to get that flavor uh that flavor mixture right as well so the age-old question always is a lot of this has to do i mean and 
credit to the national brands. They spend the money on the marketing. They spend the money on the packaging and so on. So clearly people are more you know, attracted to them. They're familiar with them. But the age-old question always, and this, I mean, as a parent, I'm sure you understand this, is that are they the same thing? Like, are they, are you really just buying basically the same product uh, for less money? This is the argument like that I had with my dad. And now I'm probably going to have with my kids was, you know, I always wanted the national brand. He said, it's the same stuff. And it's just, we were just paying for the marketing. Why will sure, I? Sure, dad. Sure, dad. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, so, and you know what? I ended up sort of vindicating him a little bit because you go through. So the only reason you can, the only way that I found to really kind of see behind the curtain here is Canadian Food Inspection Agency will occasionally post recalls. You know, there's some right. problem with the product or some problem that was at the facility. But what will happen sometimes if both the store brand and the national brand were made at the same place is they get recalled at the same time. So you can kind of see and then it kind of gives you a window into, OK, who's making who's making national brands and uh, private label. And there are major some of the biggest names in Canadian food are also making private label right for example i mean i i because one of the things that it was struck me before talking to i of course went to look again is that when you buy private label there is no indication on it about who made it there it's not like these you know these no-name chips are brought to you by frito-lay or whatever right it's not that at all they never give you they don't even leave any real breadcrumbs uh to figure out who it is that's actually making the private label product no it's usually prepared for retailer right x so, but, but then you, you know, there are also outside of the national brands, there's also private, because private label has become such a big thing. There are companies now, manufacturers that are just private, they just do private label. They don't want to mess with having a brand and all of the marketing and that goes into that. So they just, they just get good at making a specific thing like snacks. And then they, they are going to just do it for the private label shops or in some cases are going to do it for national brands that don't have enough manufacturing capacity in Canada, as well as the store brands. So there's right. a lot of different ways um, to slice it. But like I said, it's, it's complicated and, and um, it took a, a lot of words to explain. <laughs> it did. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a great article because there's so much to it, along with sort of uh, we're trying to figure out. I mean, you were mentioning, I think it's Agropore, the, the Canadian the, that went in and sort of started making private label brands only on the dairy side. So what, what did you walk away from this with? Uh, Jake, because you spent a lot of time researching it. I gather you probably left most of what you learned on the cutting room floor, as we say in the uh, broadcasting business. What did you walk away from uh, from this whole experience? And I, I spent like, I've been working on this since November. Like it's been a couple of months. Uh, and I still, I, I spoke, speaking of AgriPure, um, they, I talked to the person who heads up their Canadian brand and they, Canadian business. And, and they, you know, they have Nitrell, which is a major dairy brand in Canada, but they also do a lot of private label. He said he has partnerships with most big players in Canada for on, in some way or another in terms of cheese and ice cream. And, and uh, he said, I was talking to him and I said, you know, you, you probably can walk through a store and think to yourself, we make that, we make that, we make that. But a shopper like me could walk through a store and, and have no idea. And to the point that AgriPure has to send notes out to its employees saying, Hey, by the way, these are the store brands we make. If you want to support the company, yeah. but I, so now when I walk through grocery stores, if you do in terms of takeaways, I think it makes a little more sense to me. And what what I really came away with, and in, in being in in the in that product development test kitchen, they're always changing. Everything is always changing. Not only are the store brands made by different people, it, it's always 
even those contracts go up for renewal all the time. And they're always looking for, you know, someone else to make it or it's going up for tender and things are getting, they're, they're looking for ways to make it cheaper. So I find that now when I walk through the grocery store, I used to think like the brand that I, I, you know, even if I, it was a store brand or a national brand, if I was eating that, you know, 10 years ago or when I was a kid, it's probably the same stuff, but it's not. The, the, the ingredients are changing. The suppliers are changing. The way that the people who actually make it are changing. It's it just, I realize it's a much more dynamic place than I thought. Well, Jake, thanks for, uh, thanks for, for sort of lifting the lid off it just a little bit. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's fun to talk about. Thanks for having me. It's always interesting when one jurisdiction goes out ahead and tries something that no one else has done before because it takes both courage and sometimes it doesn't necessarily work out as expected. And so it was all with all that last year on this day, January 31st, that British Columbia became the first jurisdiction in Canada to decriminalize the possession of small amounts of some illicit drugs. It was the start of a three-year pilot program. It'll wrap up uh, on uh, January 31st, 2026. The goal, the stated goal was to reduce the fear and shame associated with drug use that prevents addicts from reaching out for help. It was also to, you know, prevent uh, or not, but to keep police officers from having to worry about about these sort, this sort of work at all times. Although in many ways, it had already, already been de facto decriminalized on the streets. Uh, oftentimes, people were not stopped for possession uh, of small amounts of drugs for personal use. Um, it is not legalization, to be clear. It is not legalization. Instead, it means that for the past year here in this province, those 18 years and older cannot be arrested, charged, or have their drugs seized if they have 2.5 Five grams or less. It's a fairly small amount, 2.5 grams or less in their possession of a number of so-called hard drugs, including opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, MDMA, which is ecstasy. Um, and, and of course, possessing more than that or selling them remains illegal. It was and still is a pretty monumental shift in drug policy. This is what then Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, the federal minister, Carolyn Bennett, who's off to become our ambassador in Denmark now, uh, had to say about the exemption given to BC at the time. We will work closely to evaluate and monitor its implementation to ensure that this exemption continues to meet public health and public safety objectives. So how is it working out so far? Now, from the outset, this was not meant to be a magic bullet, but it was touted as a way, amongst other things, to help bring down the number of overdose deaths uh, in this opioid crisis that we still uh, are still experiencing. That did not happen. BC's toxic drug deaths reached record levels with an average of seven people a day dying in 2023. Again, this was not meant to instantly bring that number down, but part of the expectation was maybe perhaps it would move the needle in the right direction. That has not happened. There's also been a backlash against an increase of drug use in public places, or at least the perception that there's been an increase of sort of drug use in public places. That prompted BC's premier to pass a law in October that bans drug use in most public places, kind of like smoking or drinking alcohol, and gives police the power to seize those drugs. So it would give the police, once again, the power to seize those drugs, regardless of the amount, if the person won't move on, ostensibly if they're holding less than 2.5, 2.5 grams or less, right? But there was a legal challenge to that, and the courts blocked it. So the province is appealing. So for the time being, that issue has not been resolved. Add it all up, overdose deaths are still increasing. Anger about drug use in public uh, has public patience 
maybe wearing thin just a little bit, bit, 52 weeks in. Opposition parties here in BC are already calling for the pilot project to be scrapped altogether. But we thought we'd ask someone who's kept a very close eye on this for a very long time, and that is uh, the Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department, Fiona Wilson. She also happens to be President of the BC Association of Chiefs of Police and Chair of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police Drug Advisory Committee. So she's been watching this closely from many different perspectives for quite some time now. And she joins me. Uh, Deputy Chief Wilson, thank you. Thank you for having me. Just uh, for listeners, to, we'll go back in time a little bit, I guess, just in terms of um, of the BC Association of Chiefs of Police, you're, were you supportive of this decriminalization move from the get-go? You know, police across this province have always been supportive of the notion of not putting people in jail or introducing them into the criminal justice system simply by virtue of their personal drug use. So, you know, maybe not historically going way back, but certainly in recent years, that has been our position. So, yes, we support the idea of directing people to pathways of health instead of to the criminal justice system. Realistically, uh, a year ago, what kind of impact did this have on on frontline members in terms of policing? Because my understanding was that uh, that sort of possession, not that it, it had been ignored, but it hadn't been, you know, the criminalization of that had been sort of, de fa it had been de facto decriminalized for a while. Certainly in many, many cities across the province, there was de facto de decriminalization. And part of that was as a result of uh, various drug policies of different organizations, policing organizations across the province, but also because Crown made it very clear in 2020 when they came out with their directive to police, basically saying that they would only charge for simple possession in really rare circumstances. So yes, in this province, we had de facto decriminalization, certainly in places like Vancouver. Um, but when decriminalization took effect on January 31st of 2023, of course, it was a big shift in terms of training for our members across the province to make sure that they were, you know, lawfully engaged in their duties and not unnecessarily engaging with people who they shouldn't be uh, with the new decriminalization exemption in place. How was that? Because it, uh, you're right. When you think about it, you're sort of taking any question of judgment out of it to some extent. And there are sort of strict guidelines. That is that is a big difference for, for frontline members and their day-to-day -day interactions with people that they may uh, see on the streets and so on. Well, I think the biggest change, to be frank, was that, you know, under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, the possession of uh, illicit su substances was what was criminalized. And um, so, you know, if our members saw somebody who was, for example, using illicit drugs in public, they were able to approach that person under the uh, provisions of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act and use their authority to stop them, uh, perhaps to arrest them, to address the fact that they were using drugs in a public space, um, and then use their discretion to either ask them to move along. In some cases, certainly they would seize those drugs um, but generally, in terms of charges, that was indeed very, very rare. If we look back then at one year of this, uh, maybe we'll start with the positives because because uh, I know there have been some some there have been some negatives, but perhaps start with the positives. What has worked out about this uh, this trial run into criminalization for police right across the province? Well, I think there's a, definitely an acknowledgement that, um, you know, drug use should be treated as a health issue and not a criminal one. We've definitely seen a dramatic reduction in police interactions with people who use drugs when it is when it historically would have been exclusively because of that drug use. 
Um, and also we recognize that historically when we seized an individual's drugs, it would often spur them to uh, perhaps commit crime, to get money, to replace those drugs, or go to dealers who perhaps weren't as familiar to them, which could be very dangerous, um, or just put themselves into circumstances that weren't safe. And, you know, in the worst case scenario, uh, particularly this applies to women, perhaps engaging in sex work to earn more money to replace the drugs that were seized. So, you know, those are all recognized positive outcomes of reducing interactions between police and people who use drugs, for sure. Has it allowed um, officers more time to focus on other on other sorts of crime? I mean, I think that was one of the maybe one of the, the the notions of a residual effect here too that it would free up police from 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 having to take care of these issues because they could focus on other stuff. You know, to be honest with you, that is that has not been the case, and the right. reason I say that is because historically, like for the last many years, our efforts with respect to drug work has been, um, you know, targeting the groups and individuals who are causing the most harm in society. So the people who are trafficking, importing, producing, and that hasn't changed. So it's not like we had this, you know, bucket of resources that were focused on personal possession of illicit drugs, and those resources were freed up so that we could uh, do other things. It's been many, many years since we've been, you know, focusing our enforcement action on people who use and possess drugs for personal uh, possession and and use. So really, um, there hasn't been a big shift in terms of freeing up resources, no. How about some of the tackle some of the negatives now because I know there is a public perception around some of the negatives. From your perspective, what have been some of the downsides, some of the unintended consequences that we're seeing here? So I think for police, our largest challenge certainly has been with respect to not being able to address situations of problematic public consumption. You know, I recognize I've, I've done three tours of duty in the downtown east side at different ranks on this job and in, in my 25 years of service. And I can tell you that, you know, the majority of people who use drugs uh, go out of their way to avoid situations where they're using in front of kids, for example. However, we do come across circumstances that are extremely concerning to members of the public um, who perhaps want to go to the beach with their kids or are standing at a bus shelter. And there is somebody who's using illicit drugs in those circumstances. What happened with decriminalization was that our members no longer had the authority to address circumstances like that when it appeared uh, or when it appears that the individual is in possession of less than 2.5 grams of illicit drugs. We simply do not have the authority to engage with that individual. And we always teach our members to make sure that before they engage with somebody uh, for enforcement purposes, that they are on solid legal ground. So I would say that has been the number one most concerning aspect of uh, decriminalization. Right. And and there was an attempt to try to improve that. And it was it's been it's now in front of the courts. It was struck down. So for the time being, I, I suspect that police remain somewhat hamstrung when it comes to this. You know, when we, people talk about drug use in parks and so on, uh, that uh, this continues to be to be an issue. Exactly. So we were very pleased when Health Canada added three additional exceptions to the exemption so that that included places like um, splash pads and within a certain distance of structures in a playground, for example. But uh, we really do feel that there is other concerning circumstances under which people may be using drugs. And we really want our members to be able to simply move that person along under those circumstances. 
we really supported the Public Consumption Act um, because we felt like it was a very compassionate approach to addressing problematic drug use without recriminalizing people. You know, our members would have been required to ask the person simply to leave. You know, the use of illicit drugs wasn't actually the offense. It was the refusal to leave that would have could have ultimately ended up in some sort of enforcement action. So we felt like it was a very good compromise between addressing those public safety concerns that we're hearing loud and clear about from community, but also respecting the fact that this should be indeed a health crisis. Deputy Chief Fiona Wilson of the Vancouver Police Department is with us this half hour. We're talking about the one-year anniversary of decriminalization of small amounts, the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs, 2.5 grams as it is in BC. It is something that was meant to free up the criminal system from uh, those who possess small amounts of drugs, drugs, a more compassionate approach to this. There have been critics of it, obviously. The uh, BC Association of Chiefs of Police were were supportive of this from the get-go, of this idea, but also there have been some unintended consequences, such as some concerns over uh, the use of drugs in public places, especially around children. Um, Here we are at a year. I guess it was always meant to be a pilot project that we would take stock of as it went along. What kind of tweaks do you think Are you still generally supportive of it, I guess, would be the first question. So uh, that's a great question. We are still supportive of the spirit of decriminalization in so much as we do not want to introduce people to the criminal justice system simply by virtue of their personal drug use. Um, You know, we would really like personal drug use to be seen as a health issue and encourage people to um, pathways of health with respect to their their drug use. You know, having said that, we do have some significant concerns. And and as I said earlier, public consumption is uh, at the forefront of those concerns for sure. What could be done then? I mean, I know this is now in front of the court, so this is basically tied up for a bit, but you would think this is a bit of a make or break. Does this strike you as a make or break issue for when this comes up, when we look back at the full extent of this pilot project, whether or not we can find a way to properly address this issue around public consumption? You know, I do think it is a significant issue for communities across the province, and we've certainly heard loud and clear about that from chiefs and from our uh, mayors and city councils across the province. Whether it's a make or break issue, I think that we have been heavily invested as a police organization in trying to advocate for this matter to be addressed, for sure. As I said earlier, it's one of the reasons why we heavily supported the Public Consumption Act. I think that would have been a really great balance between addressing those public concerns about consumption, but also respecting the people who use drugs and and sort of the spirit of decriminalization. I think that uh, there have been some efforts by various municipalities to advance bylaws, you know, and I do understand that the province is appealing um, the BC Supreme Court's decisions. So certainly more to come on that. As chair of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police's Drug Advisory Committee, you must be asked by others across the country about how it's going. Uh, and, and, and Because I suspect that others are looking at this as well. I mean, there's a lot of eyes on BC right now. What have you been telling them? Well, I think there's, uh, you know, we've talked about some of the positives and some of the negatives. And uh, we share that information with our colleagues across the country. This is a pilot project. And I actually feel really proud about the fact that 
um, police in British Columbia were willing to look at alternatives to address the tragic situation with respect to overdose deaths in this province that, as we all know, continues to rise. And I feel like we have, you know, had a seat at the table to try and come up with some uh, progressive outside of the box solutions to this. And we share that journey and um, lessons learned along that journey, certainly with our colleagues across the country. Right. You must hear, if, I mean, because we hear the criticism from other provinces as well. I mean, there must you must face some tough questions, too, about, about how this works and how do you sell it to the public, too, or sell it is probably the wrong word, but how it works for you and how it works for your membership. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this this is a pilot project for a reason. Decriminalization, I've always said, is one piece of a very large puzzle. And that puzzle has to include things like education, access to treatment, harm reduction, other harm reduction efforts, safe supply. There's a whole myriad of efforts that need to be made in a whole pile of different areas, in my mind, before that puzzle picture could be complete. Decriminalization is simply one piece of that. And it's really important that we continue to advocate for uh, resources for people who are looking for treatment. You know, we have uh, previously advocated for treatment on demand. And just for a real increase in those uh, the availability of those resources for people who want to access them. Deputy Chief Wilson, uh, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is a controversial topic, so bear with me on this one. Here's a stat you may not know. 27% of traffic fatalities on Canadian roads are the direct result of speeding. 27%. That's about, I do the math, about 800 deaths a year. Not to mention that speed is often a factor in the other 73% of fatal road collisions. Police forces across the country have spent years trying to get drivers to slow down. Speed kills is probably a slogan that just about all of you have heard of. And yet that, uh, and yet the fact that despite vehicles themselves are safer than ever before, uh, meaning your chances of surviving a collision, in other words, are much higher than they used to be. Here we are. California has roughly the same population as Canada and is seeing very similar speed-related deaths on their roads, about 1,150 a year. So one senator in that state thinks he has a solution, a bill that would require every passenger vehicle, truck, and bus manufactured or sold in California to have speed governors starting in 2027. The technology is called an intelligent speed limiter system, and basically it would slow the vehicle down or sound off an alarm, depending if it's active or passive. In this case, when the vehicle is 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. Now, there's lots of talk about this. I mean, they've been criticized and so on. Um, Some are calling it government overreach, too expensive, too intrusive, you name it. Uh, This is the senator, Mark Wiener, a Democrat, and he says instead it's common sense, and he points to past examples that were also controversial. When the federal government started mandating seatbelts, there were people who said, that's an overreach. You're invading my freedom. I think we understand now that without that seatbelts have saved countless, countless lives. Still, this is in the very beginning stages. It's expected to go to committee sometime in the spring. The European Union has passed legislation that will require those passive speed governors in all cars sold in member countries starting this July. So should we be having at least these discussions here at home? Joining me now is Mark Andrews. He's a retired traffic inspector with the Ontario Provincial Police and now a professor at the School of Community Justice and Police Foundations at Canador College. Uh, Mark, thanks for your time tonight. Uh, my pleasure. 
You know, for someone who's uh, maybe we can start with just what you saw o- over your many years out there, just the, you know, the devastation of these crashes. I, I imagine it's something you don't ever forget. No, never. Um, and that's uh, part of the my continuing interest is the tragedies that you saw over the course of a very long career um, dealing with this and the impact on families, the impact on communities, the impact on the medical system it just goes on and on and it has a huge ripple effect. So it's always been an interest of mine is how do we slow this down? How do we stop them? That, yeah. That's always been my goal. I, I know in interviewing other people who've been in your position over the past, so often what you hear is those involved in these fatalities will say it, you know, it all happened in an instant. It all happened in, in the, you know, in the snap of a finger. Yeah. in a blink of an eye yeah. and uh, people, uh, you know, they don't understand how fast this stuff happens and I've done all kinds of work with different organizations, um, trying to do driver uh, awareness, uh, avoiding collisions and, and doing all the right things. And uh, it's always surprising to me how many people say, well, I'm a great driver and it'll never happen to me because I'm a good driver. Um, and uh, you then smile. I usually smile and say, well, yeah, but it's all those other people who are out there who aren't. Yeah. Um, you don't, you, so, you don't drive in a vacuum, right? No, for sure. Exactly. You don't drive in a vacuum. So, In your experience, how often and how devastating, how often was speeding a factor and how devastating was that element of these, of these crashes that you witnessed or that you, were, you would have investigated? Many, many, many times. And it's, it's pretty interesting when, because lots of statistics are thrown out there, right? And, and, and there's different ones that you see about... Um, uh, distracted driving is, has overtaken impaired driving as a number one causation, uh, lack of seatbelts and all those other things. And you look at speeding, though, as part of um, what we call the big four involved in traffic work. Um, and speeding is always a contributing factor. It might not be number one, but it's always a contributing factor of some kind. Because if you've lost control and now you've slid into something, you were going too fast for the condition. And I know that sounds very odd to hear, but if you have no control of your vehicle, then it was going too fast for you at the time. If you're inattentive because you're on your phone or you're eating soup or whatever it is, and I can tell you this, I have seen every human. I was going to say, I suspect you've seen someone. You've seen someone eating soup, or you wouldn't have mentioned it. Yeah, I yeah, I have seen every human function going on behind the wheel of a car in motion. Yeah, that what 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 interests me too, uh, Mark, when you look at it over the years is it's not like the speed kills campaigns haven't been put into place. It's not as if um, no. every you know people are all fundamentally aware of how devastating an extra ten kilometers an hour can be when there's an incident involving a pedestrian. Uh, you know, we everyone is acutely aware of this, yeah. and yet all these campaigns don't seem to have had a lasting impact. Maybe they've had some impact, but they don't feel like they've had a, a huge impact. They don't have a huge impact. And surprisingly, people who have been involved in collisions will also be involved in another one. And you would think once bitten, uh, twice shy. Now it has had impact on some. And if it's been a devastating collision where we have loss of life or life altering injuries, it definitely has an impact. But it's interesting to me, the number of of collisions I've investigated or, or overseen the investigations where there was end result wasn't complete tragedy and there is this nervous laughter of well i got away with that 
and it's that acceptance of risk. And you, you read through the literature on, on traffic safety, there's always this acceptance of risk. I get away with it once, so I'll do it again because I got away with it. And you see all the, you know, all of the safety blitzes. You see all the people trying to do the right thing to get you to slow down, but they're not talking about me. They're talking about that person over there because I'm a good driver. Right. I, from your professional ex experience, when you look at the dangerous ones out there, because I think a lot of people don't consider themselves to be to yep. be a threat on the roads. What percentage of drivers are really the problem, do you think? Or is it is it higher than we would like to imagine? Um, it actually, uh, it is a smaller percentage. And when you start to, if you want to do good traffic enforcement, you need to understand the data of what's going on around you and where you are. Um, who's driving fast? When are they driving fast? What are they driving? What's the weather conditions? What's the day of the week? All of those things. Have they consumed alcohol? Do they consume alcohol? All of those kind of things. And you start to look at, at, at these statistics and you start to get a picture painted. And, you know, you start to get an age range, you start to get, um, you know, uh, a gender range, you know, sadly, still, uh, males are almost 75% more uh, susceptible to being killed in a car crash than females. And that's across the border, board, be it motor vehicles, be it snow machines, be it boats, be it ATVs. Yeah. <laughs> Men are susceptible to it. And there's all these other aspects of what does that mean? So it is, it's troubling to me to see this repetitive again and again and again. There was one summer uh, when I was working that I could tell you on a Tuesday between two and four o'clock, I was going to have a fatal cl uh, collision on the Trans-Canada Highway in Northeast region. Right. I, guess just I, could, I just knew. And it was inevitably happening. On a beautiful, clear, sunny day, you're going to have a fatal. Why that? Too? Why then? Because if it's clear and sunny, I don't have to worry about anything. It's clear and sunny. It's not snowy. It's not raining. It's not slippery. So I let my guard down because it's a beautiful day to drive. Right. Doing that, what happens then with your foot on the accelerator? The number of people I've stopped and said, I wasn't going that fast. Well, I had my, my, my cruise control on, but you will still override your cruise control with your foot on the accelerator, especially if you're not paying attention to your speed. Mark Andrews is a retired traffic inspector with the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police. He's a professor in the School of Community Justice and Police Foundations at Canadore, Canadore College. Uh, we're talking about uh, speeding and speed kills. We know it. I mean, those two words have been, have been hammered into us for years and years and years, and yet every year it still kills thousands on the roads, uh, on Canadian roads. About a quarter of all crashes have speed as a major, as the, one of the primary factors in it. Uh, so, Mark, when you look at this idea that, because, of course, California has come under some criticism for this, but the idea that this one bill is looking at is is essentially requiring car makers to equip vehicles with speed limiting devices starting in 2027. I guess they're called intelligent speed limiter systems. Uh, now, all the details haven't been worked out, obviously, but just your initial reaction to using technology to try to do what obviously drivers have been unwilling to do. Um I actually support it. And I know that's going to make me a very unpopular person. Uh, we already have legislation in Ontario, at least, where you have to have speed limiters in commercial motor vehicles. Yep. Um, and that's supposed to be that they can only go 105 kilometers per hour. The idea of a speed limiter, regardless of where you set it, and I've, I've every had chance I've had at any meeting or at seminars or whatever, if there's someone there from Transport Canada 
who is responsible for the, the bringing the vehicles, the safety of the vehicles. They set where this vehicle has to have seat belts and it has to have all these safety devices before any manufacturer can sell them in Canada. I've always asked them, explain to me why a family uh, van, seven-seater van, can go 182 kilometers per hour. The highest speed in this country legally is 120. How is it that I can buy off the lot a vehicle to drive out on the same highway as you and me and our families and the school buses and everyone else that will go 312 kilometers per hour? It's a good Why question. is that allowed? Have you, did you ever What's get an the, answer? No, not uh, the the only answers I've ever been given, and it's not by anyone from government or or any kind of legislature. They they will say, well, uh, the those the laws and on highways are provincial jurisdiction. If it's a federal person I'm talking to, and I've never got anywhere at all at a at a provincial level, but people say, well, we need to be able to get out of trouble, so we need to have speed. And my response after investigating thousands of collisions is usually I've found you get into more trouble the faster you go because it comes upon you quicker. So do I think that we need to have vehicles that only are going to go 100 kilometers per hour? If every vehicle on the road did that, um, we would have far less death on the highway. But I don't understand why um, like a four-door uh, sedan can go 220 kilometers per hour and it's advertised on the websites of the car manufacturers yeah electric cars can speed, go 262 yeah electric cars can go 262 kilometers per hour a, like a utility sports utility 289 kilometers per hour yeah, when you, yeah. why why do we need vehicles that will go those speeds when you can't legally drive over 120. And are there times when you go, oh my, I'm about to be cut off and I need to move over and I need to mat it, as they say, to get out of the way? Absolutely. You need to have a little bit of top end. But do I need to be able to go 312 kilometers per hour to do that? So you would think this is something we should at least be having a conversation. I mean, I know the Europeans have had conversations, but I think oh, there's some some stuff yes. coming in into the, in in the EU. Obviously, California's uh, looking at this as well. It's nowhere near a done deal, but they're looking at it. This yes. this should be a conversation we're at least having to see how it might work. Ex absolutely, we need to be having this conversation it, because the real sad reality is is I got my driver's license at 16. I'm not going to get tested again until I turn 80, and neither will you. And that's our skill set. And then we have jurisdictions like Ontario has now removed emergency braking from their driver test. But you can still jump in a car with the same license that you and I have that will go 312 kilometers per hour. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting conversation. Of course, there's, there, you know, just so listeners understand, uh, there are both active and passive intelligent speed limiter systems. Yes. So one that would actually slow the car down, another that just sort of sets off an alarm that tells you you're going too fast and you should slow down. Uh, do you have a preference between between those? I would prefer the one that took some of it out of the control of 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 the driver because the people that. The people that are going to drive sensible, which is the majority of people that are going to drive sensible, that are going to follow, be safe and, and do everything they can, they don't need to have the warning because they are not going to be driving like that. And the people that get the warning won't listen to it. 
if you know what I mean. Like yeah. it's the ones that I'm worried about, they won't care. And I know if we put in the chip technology to, to there will be immediately, there will be people who are figuring out a way to hack it and get around it. And that's just the nature of safety mechanisms. The number of people I've found that have disabled the seatbelt alarm and disabled this and disabled that within the safety features of a vehicle because it impedes their joy of driving is astounding to me. Well, Mark, few are better positioned to have an opinion on this than you. So I appreciate your time tonight and we'll see what happens in California in the meantime. Well, thank you for bringing attention to this. And I hope it starts conversations at high levels and within all of us, for all of us to have. Um, the number of times that we've had to knock on a door to tell someone that somebody's not coming home because someone was speeding. I, I pray that young uh, frontline responders actually will have a time when that is a rarity. And right now it's happening every day. Yeah. Mark, again, thank you. Thank you. Here's a stat that may come as a bit of a surprise to you. In 2021, there were 5 million renter households in this country. That's up from 4.1 million just a decade ago. That means that a third of all Canadians now live in rented accommodation. So now more than ever, what's happening in the rental market has a huge impact on a huge number of us. So it'll come as no surprise for those who've been looking uh, for a rental in 2023 that it was a very rough year. Supply is down despite a move to get more rental units built. Demand is high, so rental prices are up across the board. The Federal Housing Agency says the vacancy rate for purpose-built rental apartments sat at 1.5% in October 2023 when CMHC conducted the annual survey, down from 1.9% a year earlier. The average rent for a two-bedroom purpose-built apartment grew 8% to just over $1,300 per month last year, well above historical averages. Meanwhile, the average rent for a two-bedroom condo was about $2,000, with the vacancy rate for such units falling from 1.6 to 0.9% annually. Michelle Zedekian, The Canadian Press. Right, so those are the highlights there. Some of the interesting nuggets in this is Alberta. Because I think for a long time, you know, Victoria and Vancouver have always been pretty bad. The interior BC has been tough as well. But it was always felt like Edmonton and Calgary were a bit of safety valves for that stuff, right? Not anymore. Vacancy rates in Calgary and Edmonton saw steep declines uh, from 2.7% in 2022 to 1.4% in 2023 for Calgary and from 43 to 2.4% in Edmonton. Uh, Vancouver sort of remained the tightest market in the country as it always has, 0.9% vacancy. That's very low, unchanged from 2022. Toronto, vacancy dropped from 1.6 to 1.4%. Montreal from 2 to 1.5%. So, you know, I mean, all across the board, a lot of those cities where vacancies were decent, Everybody's pretty low now. Um, and as for the cost of rent, I mean, you know, it's high now, $1,359 for a two-bedroom purpose-built apartment. And that's across the country. That's up 8%. Um, and there was a lot of growth, too, in like places such as, as Edmonton. It was up. Cal- Edmonton was up 6.4% last year. Calgary, 14.3%. So you can see that things are changing. Uh, we want to get the, a bigger perspective on this. So we reached out to... The team that actually wrote this report, Kevin Hughes is one of them. He's Deputy Chief Economist at the Canada Morgan Mortgage and Housing Corporation. He joins me now. Kevin, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. I imagine it's no surprise to anyone who's been watching the rental market over the last 12 months or so to see these results today. But pretty stark what you found. I mean, very little supply and naturally prices are up. 
Yes, exactly. As you said at the outset, the results shouldn't really surprise anyone. Uh, we've been, you know, monitoring throughout the year conditions on the rental market, even though we have a yearly yearly survey. That monitoring has told us, uh, you know, for several years now that demand has continued to increase and has come from many sources. And at the same time, supply has been lagging and certainly insufficient to respond to that demand. Right. Uh, it was it was uh, not not necessarily a total shock, but lowest since 1988, which I imagine is sort of lowest since you began recording it. Right. In terms of vacancy rates nationwide. Yeah, since the since let's say the 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 survey as we know it, yeah, that you could say that exactly is right. So, so what are we looking at here in terms of in terms of supply right across the country? Because there's been some interesting developments. I know that people who follow these things know that Toronto, Vancouver, Victoria, notoriously low vacancy rates, but we're starting to see it spring up in other spaces too. So if we look at the the rental stock and how the rental stock grew over like last year. We see kind of a um, east west story. So we have those that did record some increases. We have you know Vancouver close to three percent, Edmonton three point seven, Calgary over six percent, um, and then you know when you go over to Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, you're more at the either zero or maybe one and a half percent at best. But getting back west, I mean, despite those th- th- that increase in supply, you know, we saw Edmonton and Calgary actually, if there was a story this year, it was that those two markets where vacancy rates were, you know, for Edmonton 4 and 3.3% and 2.7 in Calgary, they've now gone back, they've gone down to close to the, you know, the levels that we see in the, in the other big centres, 2.4 in Edmonton, 1.4 in Calgary. So that supply that I was talking about just a few seconds ago did not, definitely not res- respond to the demand. In the West, in in Alberta in particular, you know, you had a year where population grew quite a lot. The population of uh, renter households coming from either from abroad, but also from other provinces and possibly even within the province. So that renter population story was definitely strong there. Strong economy drawing people also there. And, you know, for the rest of the country, we'll talk about the supply has also been affected by the inflationary context as well. Uh, supply shortages for labor. Like if we go back go to Toronto, we saw some months and or some, even some quarters last year where the supply was relatively sustained, but in terms of starts projects, but we suspect that those projects were probably the result of um, you know financing that occurred before you know inflation actually took hold. And so you know we always talk about it in our economist jargon about the lagged effects, you know, the, the, uh, of, of different things. And I think that inflation is definitely one of them. And we haven't, you know, yet seen the end of the impacts of inflation, not just on homeowners, but also on, uh, you know, on the supply side. Uh, as far as rentals concerned, the, as far as the demand is concerned, we you know, we saw that coming from two main sources. One, the demographic side I just mentioned before about the you know the immigrant new immigrants, uh, but there's also the younger you know from the domestic side, the young Canadians who are the, their first time renting. Or there's also perhaps more prevalent in central and eastern Canada, but you know uh, aging uh, households that are seeking to downsize and going from you know uh, uh, an ownership 
situation to an apartment situation. So, and then finally in the demand, there is the, you know, we talked about in the past about the accession to, to, um, to own, but now it's more like, you know, renting, you know, is even, you know, the, the choice now because uh, owning is, is become beyond uh, people's uh, means. So that's another demand factor. So a lot of elements there on the demand side that have kind of been converging and leading to this. Yeah, one of the ones I found interesting was that idea of new renters entering the market domestically, in part because there has been, we have seen a pretty stable job market out there. There's been some wage growth. So presumably uh, younger folks who couldn't afford to move out earlier, can't afford to buy, are now entering the rental market as well. A rental market that's, that's you know, pretty clogged up, but still, you know, they're looking for places of their own, right? Exactly. That's it. And it's a, it's a story that's often forgotten, but that, that is, that's occurring, you know, all the time. And if you look at, like, I don't want to get into too much of the, you know, the technical side, but if you look at, you know, the age pyramid, uh, you know, the, the different uh, stratas of population, well, there, I mean, there are areas in Canada where, you know, potentially there's a lot of people there that are kind of ripe to be, you know, first time renters and uh, they're having a difficult time. And, um, you know, we have a, one of our new statistics is looking at the share of the, the rental stock that is available to the lowest income quartiles or you know groups if you wish you know two things there is that the, that stock is not very large it's in fact quite small and the, that stock is also uh, you know experiencing very very low vacancy rates as well so difficult for you know people on that side for sure and um, you know we didn't talk about the condominium the secondary market but you know we have about a third of you know, condominiums in Canada that are rented, the vacancy rate there is actually lower than the, you know, the, the purpose-built vacancy rate. So it's at one point, 0.9 in our last survey. And so, you know, that's uh, also, you know, testimony that we're in very, very tight situation. Yeah, you were mentioning, according to your stats, that there are some, uh, you know, for the, low, for the lower income earners, there are some cities now that are, there is nothing that would qualify as affordable. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly that. I mean, you know, some people point to Mon- Montreal as being uh, Montreal, Quebec City, where that situation is not as critical. Perhaps some between 15 and 20 percent of the stock would be affordable, but it would be affordable if it were available. And it's not available because it's practically zero percent vacancy rate in those. So they're already taken up which means that across the country, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult on that side. The, the rental market survey is obviously very important for, for renters, but owners and, and landlords are also take quite a, you know, interest in the results of the report. One of the statistics we have is the, the arrears, you know, so arrears are up, uh, okay. which is testimony to, you know, more difficult conditions for you know both people have to pay rent but then those who rely on that for their for their living in ontario for example as a whole we have like in terms of the percent the dollar percentage of uh, you know rent in arrears we're at over 400 million dollars wow. in in rental arrears Kevin Hughes is Deputy Chief Economist at the CMHC, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. They've released their annual uh, rental report for 2023 today. No surprise, uh, vacancies are 
down. It's 1.5% nationwide now, worse in some places, better in others, obviously. And there's a new high for average national rent. Now, there are many factors here. A lot of new renters coming into the market. Uh, immigration, of course, there were a lot of new Canadians uh, last year. They tend to rent. There are young people coming into the market with a slightly stable job market, maybe some higher wages who are renting as well. There's not enough supply. And of course, there are always those who are looking to sell off their homes and downsize. And then buying a home is so tough these days that the rental market is becoming pretty clogged up. We've been talking about that for a few years now. Uh, is there any relief in sight here? It feels like it's going to take some time to clear this backlog, no matter how quickly new rental uh, units come onto the market. That's an excellent question. I think we we should go, you know, factor by factor and go down the list. And, and you know, if you look at the demographic factors, they, there could be some slowdown in immigration. We'll see how that, that story evolves. Uh, but, you know, domestically, you know, you're still going to see, uh, you know, young Canadians looking for, you know, rental and same thing for downsizing. That's not really going to change too much. Uh, the aging of the population is, is was before Eastern Canada phenomenon, but it's now uh, definitely, you know, all the way into Ontario for sure. Western Canada is a bit of a different story. So that's going to continue for sure. I think that the where things can change is, you know, when the inflation period begins to ease and, you know, that it becomes maybe a relatively, I use that, you know, with a bit of caution, relatively easier to purchase a home. And, um, you know, when that context kind of resolves itself, that will definitely be, you know, a help. I think that the big you know, key in this whole equation is really the supply side. And we've been uh, mentioning for several years now, we've done some studies on the supply gaps in Canada to reach affordability. We just estimated that that supply, additional supply would be in the, to the tune of 3.5 million units from now till 2030, which is quite a substantial number. And the question is, how, how do we even get close to that? And I think that, you know, we have to realize that the, the private sector here is key in this, uh, you know, rental accommodation in Canada is supplied by the private sector. The incentives are not really there for further investment. And so the question is how to create those incentives for the supply side, but without completely paralyzing demand on, on the other. So that's not an, an easy equation to balance, but that's kind of what we're, we're looking at going forward. I mean, we've all, all areas of society, government, private, you know, semi-private and, and, and public sector have a role to play. Uh, but I think, you know, the private, the, the terms of the private sector, we, we need to listen to their side of the story as well and see what it's going to take from them. And to have, as we would say, you know, kind of all hands on deck. Right. I mean, one of the things that stands out, too, is just, I mean, you know, here where I am, they've sort of started cracking down on Airbnb and so on. But that that sort of liberates small units. And it, there doesn't seem to be a huge lack of small places out there. But the moment you start to head into two bedrooms, something that would be you know suitable for a family, forget it, right? Yes. I mean, you know, the, when you're asking about, you know, the glimmers of hope, well, the question then is, what if that is not really sufficient, then what? I use sometimes the Montreal as a case in point here in the early 2000s when vacancy rate was below 1%. Uh, it's 1.5 now and it was like quite below 1% um, on the 1st of July, which is when, you know, Montreal... People move, yeah. Leases, I, grew up, people I grew up there. I grew up there. So I remember that 1st so of July so well, know, yes. Yeah. You know that very well. Yeah. Um, well, at that period, you know, you saw like up to 5,000 people in, in gymnasiums in, in July waiting for places and... 
that situation did not like what what happened then is that people started leaving Montreal. People started leaving the island of Montreal, and you saw in this, in, you know, if you look at the internal migration statistics in Quebec, you saw the island of Montreal losing about twenty five thousand people a year net. And so, you know, people have their limits, and if they if, even if there are prosperous economic conditions, like at that time, Montreal too, there was a booming labor market. But, you know, if you can't find a place to live that you can afford, well, you go elsewhere. And so that's one possible path that, you know, people will will, will move elsewhere. The other one is that conditions will continue to deteriorate. And I mean, if you look at, you know, the situation of our major population centers in Canada, and you compare them to others in the world where there's much more dense habitation, lodging is much smaller than it is here. We think it's small here, but it's even smaller elsewhere. That could also be something that 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 could evolve if, if this is not meant. So more, um, if you want to call it precarious or more difficult living conditions could, could be a possible path if we don't address the supply problem. Well, Kevin, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's the end of January, um, and that means for all those of you who chose to do a dry January, who took that plunge back on New Year's Day, your mission is complete. And for many, that's a big accomplishment. I didn't do it this year. A a chance to take, you know, I didn't, but I still thought it was interesting. Uh, This is a chance to take it easy after, it was a chance to take it easy after overindulging during the holidays, of course. But that can lead to what experts often call blowout February a period of excess after a period of abstinence. And for others, though, maybe, perhaps it was a step to try to reshape uh, their relationship with booze altogether. My next guest admits to being an habitual dry January dropout. But that changed four years ago, not on January 1st, as you might suspect, but on January 24th. Uh, That is Lindsay Sutherland Bull's sobriety date, January 24th. As she explains it, dry January wasn't enough, but it was a good place to start. So as another January is behind us, perhaps this is time to say mission accomplished for some, or maybe you're looking to build on that momentum. Either way, Lindsay's story is one that you should listen to because it's about a lot more than just alcohol. Lindsay Sutherland Bowl is a personal development expert. She's the founder of a group called She Walks Canada that you can find on Instagram and online. And she joins me now. Lindsay, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. You know, the whole notion of dry January, there's also dry February, which is another thing too. I mean, these are kind of arbitrary dates that we set ourselves, but it has become increasingly popular. I think it, and what does it tell you? It tells me that, tells me that people are sometimes worried about their relationship with alcohol and that uh, January 1st feels like a nice time to try to try to reset that. Well, I think there's a lot of things that are going on. I think there's the conversation around being open to talking about problematic drinking has just exploded really. And I, I, and I think that's one of the blessings of COVID is that so many people are able to talk about mental health issues that they maybe didn't feel so comfortable talking about before. Um, and so with the priority around self-care, um, uh, mental health, um, alcohol is a part of this discussion. And so more and more women are raising their hands and not quite ready to say me too, but they may be ready to, under the guise, do dry January. Yeah, I, I was. I, you gave an interview recently where you described yourself as an habitual dry January dropout. You're not alone, I know, <laughs> uh, but, but it, it is... It can be a bit of a. I mean, it can be more difficult than people give it uh, give it give it credit for. One hundred percent. And so I am a dry January dropout, dropout, and all of those dropouts are my people. You know, that's one thing that I that I certainly say. 
Um, and, you know, it's tough. I've, I talked about this too, that uh, dry January, sober October, dry July, all these, all these great initiatives are great, um, but they are not indicators of someone's um, successful navigation of their relationship with alcohol. It means that their willpower could get them through 30 days of not drinking. And so 30 days isn't anywhere near long enough to assess one's relationship. It's enough to say, hey, I, I can get through 30 days, but we're not here to get through our lives, are we? No. And in fact, uh, and I should say congratulations, because I think January 24th is an important date Mm. for you. But interesting that it falls so late in the month. Oh, see, this is what's so exciting. You know, I've witnessed thousands of women go through this journey now. And I think maybe once, um, in fact, I know that it's only once, have I met a woman who got sober and stayed alcohol free starting January 1st. What's interesting is the amount of people who figure it out after dropping out. And I was certainly one of them. Right. Because it was a January 24th. I think it's four years now, right? Or just yes. four years. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Four years for, for wild years. Um, if anybody had said to me, um, you know, this is what your life is going to look like four years from now, I would have thought they were nuts. Um, and my experience um, is quite garden variety in the sense that our, our worlds just open up when we stop numbing out from them. Tell me about that, because I think um, when you talked about it needing six months, nine months, you said there wasn't, you didn't really notice a significant difference till months and months and months later. It wasn't a 30 day, 31 day experience. This was something that took many, many months to start to really feel the benefits of that decision. 100%. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, and so we're speaking about this in the context of me having a problematic relationship with alcohol. So if somebody doesn't have a problematic relationship, they're not going to have this kind of experience. But the majority of people who are problematic drinkers are these gray area drinkers who can still function on some level. We still have the capacity to choose on some level. And so the reality is that we've been choosing to numb out from our lives, right? And so we take out that numbing agent that we have relied upon for so long, um, our bodies shift, our minds shift, and we need to learn how to navigate the emotional discomfort we all feel, so life happening, um, without outsourcing our emotional discomfort to a numbing agent. And that takes time because so many of us, and I'm, you know, blanket stating women here we have a real problem with perfectionism we have a real problem with people pleasing there's and and men have their things too but um i'm speaking from the female perspective that we have to unlearn our conditioning and learn how to care for ourselves outside of numbing out from it and that takes time so for me to answer your question um it was it was the first month was tough. <laughs> um, and then uh, three months, I settled a bit. And then at six months, it was like a snowflake fell. And I love snow. And then the very next day, it was a snowball. The very next day, it was an avalanche. And then, you know, my world just opened up. And by 11 months, I knew I was never going to drink again. And I never would have said that before. What was the... Um... I suppose this uh, two-part questions are, are, are the curse. You're never supposed to ask a two-part question, but I'll, I'll ask you part one. What was the toughest part? That's a great question. The toughest part was I had no idea what my life was going to be like on the other side. So not only was I so unsure about my decision, I had no idea what my decision meant. 
Yeah. Did you even think that maybe the decision wasn't necessary, that you could maybe establish a different relationship with alcohol no. instead of just, no, <laughs> no, no, because uh, when I quit, this was my seventh attempt, like to right. be totally honest, I had tried a couple times before I said, Oh, I can moderate. Oh, I can just have one, which leads to a lapse, which leads to a year. You know, I was that kind of drinker. And like, let's be clear when I was drinking, I was the, I was a vice president of a company. Mm-hmm. I was a mother. Um, I was con- a tr- contributing member to society, my family and all these things. I was doing all the things, but I wasn't living the life I wanted to live. And the easiest part, the, the joy of it then for those who who struggle, because you're right, like anything in life, you know, you get into routines. I know it well. Listen, I mean, I work in this in this kind of industry where you work very hard during the day and you then you and then you sort of exhale. And part of the exhale, not clearly not often, but part of the exhale is to go out for a few drinks. It's what you do, right? I mean, and it's hard to break out of those patterns, I find, you know, male or female, I guess. It's hard to break out of those patterns. It's almost like a reward pattern, right? Um, and, And breaking out of reward patterns is not, is never easy. Right. And so my question is, so you just said, you know, I want to go out and have a few drinks. Well, who are you going with? Right. Other people who like to have a few drinks generally. Well, chances are they're your friends. Indeed. And so what your reward is actually is connection. You can connect without booze. Right. And you found that that's must be what that, I guess that was the thing that you discovered over those months that you could actually do this, that the alcohol was, was incidental, that it was the connection that mattered. Well, actually accident uh, alcohol is the thing that held me back. I had no idea. I thought alcohol was the answer. I thought we drank to socialize. You drink to have fun. You drink when you go on vacation, you drink on New Year's, you drink on, you know, you drink everywhere. And then when I found myself in the situation where I didn't want to afford myself that thing, I had to learn how to actually like physically show up and not do it. And yeah. then I learned over time that it is so much better without it. I know that sounds wild. I can't believe I'm actually saying it, but it's true. Everything is so much better without it. Once we've had problematic relationships. For example, I mean, maybe just one thing that you found that would be, uh, that's really stood out to you that was different, that was different pre and, you know, pre and post. Um, When I was drinking, I was... So um, I was I was in this mindset where I I wasn't achieving what I thought I should be achieving. I got to that place. And I'm like, this is it. You know, like I got to this place in my life and this isn't where I thought I'd be. Right. And despite uh, all the success, I mean, you just mentioned all the success. Right. Right. But I also had an opera career that I lost because of my drinking. Right. And so I thought that I lost the thing I cared about the most that I had built for myself, you know, aside from my family. And so I was like, I feel like I, I'm a has-been that never was. That was what I said to myself. I'm a has-been that never was and that my life wouldn't have impact. Wow. That's what I thought. Alcohol can't possibly help that. No. And then you drop the alcohol and this is what's so wild. I remember being out for a walk in my early, early, early days and I just wanted someone to walk with. I wanted someone to go for a walk with, and I wanted someone to hold my hand through this experience. I just didn't want to be alone. And four years later, actually this morning, I just got um, a message saying, you know, we have some good news on the walk front, and we indeed will not be walking alone. 
Lindsay Sutherland Bowl is a personal development expert. She's founder of She Walks Canada. Uh, she's also someone who uh, helps women with drinking, uh, with with their relationship with alcohol, to be more specific. And we're talking about the end of dry January. Many people, of course, um, set off on this on the new year, deciding they're not going to drink to make up for maybe some overindulgence in the new year. Some really are in the over the holidays, rather. But some really hope that this is a turning point. And of course, it is difficult. And we're talking about uh, how you can carry that momentum, even if you failed dry January, how you can carry that momentum uh, through for the rest of the year. Uh, Lindsay, how, how your advice then to those out there, because a lot of people will have sort of done, tried it, st- failed it, failed dry January, maybe try it again. You know, these stops and starts are are, are normal, right? Well, yeah. Um, I don't know one woman and I can say this with full honesty, I don't know one woman who had a problematic relationship who stopped the first time she tried. So if that is where you're at, you're my people. Tell me about She Walks. It sounds like, uh, because as you mentioned, a lot of this is about connection. A lot of this is about, um, you know, about feeling like you have some somewhere to go and something to do. And often that involves, that can involve a drink. Let's meet for a drink, right? Tell me a bit about She Walks, because it sounds like it it accomplishes a lot of what it was that you were, that, that alcohol, the void that alcohol was filling before. For sure. So She Walks Canada is the reflection of what worked for me in my journey to overcome over drinking. And we are a movement to empower and engage women everywhere, not just in Canada, our footprint is global, um, that are sober and sober curious as they change their relationship with alcohol. And what I learned is that I could change my relationship by walking the walk and talking the talk. And the beginning of it was I need to, to be very honest about my problematic drinking. And when I woke up on the 24th of January, 2020, I went down to my kitchen with a raging hangover and I called out everything in my kitchen that I hated. I'm like, I hate you teacup. I hate you detail. Like I actually said this stuff. And I realized that I had put all the things that I hated there. I did that. And then I realized if I could put them there, I could put something else there. And so I went out for a walk. I'm like, where am I going? It's six o'clock in the morning. You know? And so I went for a walk and um, I just, I don't know, something shifted. Something became very clear to me that it was time to change. And so I walked every day. And the longer I walked, the longer I could go without drinking. The longer I could go without drinking, the better I felt. And before I knew it, you know, I was celebrating 365 days sober. I'm like, what is that? And to mark that day a lot of women have like parties and stuff but I had lost so much weight because I had got fit by doing this walking you know <laughs> that I I said and it was a height of COVID at that time and I thought okay well what am I going to do and there were seven women that stood up and supported me as I was getting sober and I was very private about my journey but these women knew and so I collected their addresses and I used their addresses as markers on a map and I was going to go for a big walk and that walk, when I put all of their addresses in, came out to 36.5 kilometers. Wow. That's a, mar- I, that's a marathon. Oh, it's over a marathon. But yeah. what's so weird is that it was 365 days. Yeah. And I was going to walk 36.5. Anyways, and so I did. I went on my walk. I felt like a million bucks. And I also chose that day to come out publicly, mm-hmm. which was terrifying because I didn't talk about it because nobody talks about it especially somebody as the vice president of a company, you know, like women don't do that. And so I said to my boss, I said, listen, this is what I want to do. 
fully expecting him to say, don't do that. He said two words, do it. I'm like, what? I wasn't ready for that. And so I did, I, I posted everywhere. I said, this was my challenge. This is how I overcame it. I walked, I, I talked, I found other sober women. They were all strangers and we got through this together. If you want my resources, let me know. And when I returned from my walk, I had 7,000 messages of support. Oh, wow. And I thought, I'm onto something. And like, I know eight people, right? My husband and the seven women I'm up with, you know what I mean? Like, and so I thought I'm onto something. And then, so when I started She Walks Canada in March, it was or the following year, I had the idea in March. The idea was to bring women together to walk the walk and talk the talk in the safety of individuals who understand our experience, but are unknown to us so that we could fear, so that we could feel safe uh, sharing of ourselves. Because we don't with the people we love, we're afraid of shame. Well, Lindsay, uh, congratulations on your walk so far. I, I know just from your description, it's not been an easy one, but obviously it's been a it's been a gratifying and fulfilling one. Congratulations. Thank you. 